Speech by Edmund Burke. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Speech given in the House of Commons in June 1784 by Edmund Burke. Mr. Speaker, we have now discovered, at the close of the eighteenth century, that the Constitution of England, which for a series of ages had been the proud distinction of this country, always the admiration, and sometimes the envy, of the wise and learned in every other nation, we have discovered that this boasted Constitution, in the most boasted part of it, is a gross imposition upon the understanding of mankind, an insult to their feelings, and acting by contrivances, destructive to the best and most valuable interests of the people. Our political architects have taken a survey of the fabric of the British Constitution. It is singular that they report nothing against the Crown, nothing against the Lords, but in the House of Commons everything is unsound, it is ruinous in every part. It is infested by the dry-rot, and ready to tumble about our ears without their immediate help. You know by the faults they find what are their ideas of the alteration. As all government stands upon opinion, they know that the way to utterly destroy it is to remove that opinion, to take away all reverence, all confidence from it, and then, at the first blast of public discontent and popular tumult, it tumbles to the ground. In considering this question, they who oppose it, oppose it on different grounds. One is in the nature of a previous question, that some alterations may be expedient, but that this is not the time for making them. The other is that no essential alterations are at all wanting, and that neither now nor at any time is it prudent or safe to be meddling with the fundamental principles and ancient tried usages of our Constitution, that our representation is as nearly perfect as the necessary imperfection of human affairs and of human creatures will suffer it to be, and that it is a subject of prudent and honest use and thankful enjoyment, and not of captious criticism and rash experiment. On the other side there are two parties, who proceed on two grounds, in my opinion, as they state them, utterly irreconcilable. The one is juridical, the other political. The one is in the nature of a claim of right, on the supposed rights of man as man. This party desire the decision of a suit. The other ground, as far as I can divine what it directly means, is that the representation is not so politically framed as to answer the theory of its institution. As to the claim of right, the meanest petitioner, the most gross and ignorant, is as good as the best. In some respects his claim is more favourable on account of his ignorance. His weakness, his poverty, and distress only add to his titles. He sues in form of pauperis. He ought to be a favourite of the court. But when the other ground is taken, when the question is political, when a new constitution is to be made on a sound theory of government, then the presumptuous pride of didactic ignorance is to be excluded from the council in this high and arduous manner, which often bids defiance to the experience of the wisest. The first claims a personal representation, the latter rejects it with scorn and fervour. The language of the first party is plain and intelligible. They who plead an absolute right cannot be satisfied with anything short of personal representation, because all natural rights must be the rights of individuals, as by nature there is no such thing as politic or corporate personality. All these ideas are merely fictions of law, they are creatures of voluntary institution, men as men are individuals and nothing else. 
They, therefore, who reject the principle of natural and personal representation, are essentially and eternally at variance with those who claim it. As to the first sort of reformers, it is ridiculous to talk to them of the British Constitution upon any or all of its bases, for they lay it down that every man ought to govern himself, and that where he cannot go himself he must send his representative, that all other government is usurpation, and is so far from having a claim to our obedience, that it is not only our right, but our duty to resist it. Nine-tenths of the reformers argue thus, that is, on the natural right. It is impossible not to make some reflection on the nature of this claim, or avoid a comparison between the extent of the principle and the present object of the demand. If this claim be founded, it is clear to what it goes. The House of Commons, in that light, undoubtedly is no representative of the people as a collection of individuals. Nobody pretends it. Nobody can justify such an assertion. When you come to examine into this claim of right, founded on the right of self-government in each individual, you find the thing demanded infinitely short of the principle of the demand. What? One-third only of the legislature, of the government, no share at all? What sort of treaty of partition is this for those who have no inherent right to the whole? Give them all they ask, and your grant is still a cheat, for how comes only a third to be their younger children's fortune in this settlement? How came they neither to have the choice of kings, or lords, or judges, or generals, or admirals, or bishops, or priests, or ministers, or justices of peace? Why, what have you to answer in favour of the prior rights of the crown and peerage but this? Our constitution is a prescriptive constitution. It is a constitution whose sole authority is that it has existed time out of mind. It is settled in these two portions against one, legislatively, and in the whole of the judicature, the whole of the federal capacity, of the executive, the prudential and the financial administration, in one alone. Nor were your House of Lords and the prerogatives of the Crown settled on any adjudication in favour of natural rights, for they could never be so portioned. Your King, your Lords, your Judges, your Juries, grand and little, are all prescriptive, and what proves it is the disputes not yet concluded, and never becoming so, when any of them first originated. Prescription is the most solid of all titles, not only to property, but, which is to secure that property, to government. They harmonize with each other, and give mutual aid to one another. It is accompanied with another ground of authority in the constitution of the human mind, presumption. It is a presumption in favour of any settled scheme of government against any untried project that a nation has long existed and flourished under it. It is a better presumption even of the choice of a nation, far better than any sudden and temporary arrangement by actual election. Because a nation is not an idea only of local extent and individual momentary aggregation, but it is an idea of continuity, which extends in time as well as in numbers and in space. And this is a choice not of one day, or one set of people, not a tumultuary and giddy choice. It is a deliberate election of ages and of generations. It is a constitution made by what is ten thousand times better than choice. It is made by the peculiar circumstances, occasions, tempers, dispositions, and moral, civil, and social habitudes of the people, which disclose themselves only in a long space of time. It is a vestment which accommodates itself to the body. Nor is prescription of government formed upon blind, unmeaning prejudices, for man is a most unwise and a most wise being. The individual is foolish, 
The multitude, for the moment, are foolish, when they act without deliberation. But the species is wise, and when time is given to it, as a species, it almost always acts right. The reason for the crown as it is, for the lords as they are, is my reason for the commons as they are, the electors as they are. Now, if the crown and the lords and the judicatures are all prescriptive, so is the House of Commons of the very same origin, and of no other. We and our electors have power and privileges both made and circumscribed by prescription, as much to the full as to the other parts, and as such we have always claimed them, and on no other title. The House of Commons is a legislative body corporate by prescription, not made upon any given theory, but existing prescriptively, just like the rest. This prescription has made it essentially what it is, an aggregate collection of three parts, knights, citizens, burgesses. The question is whether this has been always so, since the House of Commons has taken its present shape and circumstances, and has been an essential operative part of the Constitution, which, I take it, has been for at least five hundred years. This I resolve to myself in the affirmative, and then another question arises, whether this house stands firm upon its ancient foundations, and is not, by time and accidents, so declined from its perpendicular as to want the hand of the wise and experienced architects of the day, to set it upright again, and to prop and buttress it up for duration, whether it continues true to the principles upon which it has hitherto stood, whether this be de facto the constitution of the House of Commons, as it has been since the time that the House of Commons has, without dispute, become a necessary and an efficient part of the British Constitution. To ask whether a thing, which has always been the same, stands to its usual principle, seems to me to be perfectly absurd, for how do you know the principles but from the construction? And if that remains the same, the principles remain the same. It is true that to say your constitution is what it has been is no sufficient defence for those who say it is a bad constitution. It is an answer to those who say that it is a degenerate constitution. To those who say it is a bad one, I answer, look to its effects. In all moral machinery the moral results are its test. On what grounds do we go to restore our constitution to what it has been at some given period, or to reform and reconstruct it upon principles more comfortable to a sound theory of government. A prescriptive government, such as ours, never was the work of any legislator, nor was made upon any foregone theory. It seems to me a preposterous way of reasoning, and a perfect confusion of ideas, to take the theories which learned and speculative men have made from that government, and then, supposing it made on these theories, which were made from it, to accuse the government as not corresponding with them. I do not vilify theory and speculation. No, because that would be to vilify reason itself. Neque decepitur ratio, neque decepit unquam. No, whenever I speak against theory, I mean always a weak, erroneous, fallacious, unfounded, or imperfect theory, and one of the ways of discovering that it is a false theory is by comparing it with practice. This is the true touchstone of all theories which regard man and the affairs of men. Does it suit his nature in general? Does it suit his nature as modified by his habits? The more frequently this affair is discussed, the stronger the case appears to the sense and the feeling of mankind. I have no more doubt than I entertain of my existence, that this very thing, which is stated as a horrible thing, is the means of the preservation of our constitution whilst it lasts, 
of curing it of many of the disorders which, attending every species of institution, would attend the principle of an exact local representation, or a representation on the principle of numbers. If you reject personal representation, you are pushed upon expedients, and then what they wish us to do is, to prefer their speculations on that subject to the happy experience of this country, of a growing liberty and a growing prosperity for five hundred years. Whatever respect I have for their talents, this, for one, I will not do. Then what is the standard of expedience? Expedience is that which is good for the community, and good for every individual in it. Now, this experience is the desideratum to be sought, either without the experience of means, or with that experience. If without, as in the case of the fabrication of a new commonwealth, I will hear the learned arguing what promises to be expedient. But if we are to judge of a commonwealth actually existing, the first thing I inquire is, what has been found expedient or inexpedient? And I will not take their promise rather than the performance of the Constitution. But no, this was not the cause of the discontents. I went through most of the northern parts. The Yorkshire election was then raging. The year before, through most of the western counties, Bath, Bristol, Gloucester, not one word, either in the towns or country, on the subject of representation. Much on the receipt tax, something on Mr. Fox's ambition, much greater apprehension of danger from thence than from the want of representation. One would think that the ballast of the ship was shifted with us, and that our constitution had the gunwale under water. But can you fairly and distinctly point out what one evil or grievance has happened, which you can refer to the representative not following the opinion of his constituents? What one symptom do we find of this inequality? But it is not an arithmetical inequality with which we ought to trouble ourselves. If there be a moral, a political equality, this is the desideratum in our constitution, and in every constitution in the world." Moral inequality is as between places and between classes. Now I ask, what advantage do you find that the places which abound in representation possess over others in which it is more scanty, in security for freedom, in security for justice, or in any one of those means of procuring temporal prosperity and eternal happiness, the ends for which society was formed? Are the local interests of Cornwall and Wiltshire, for instance, their roads, canals, their prisons, their police, better than Yorkshire, Warwickshire, or Staffordshire? Warwick has members. Is Warwick or Stafford more opulent, happy, or free than Newcastle or than Birmingham is? Is Wiltshire the pampered favourite, whilst Yorkshire, like the child of the bondwoman, is turned out to the desert? This is like the unhappy persons who live, if they can be said to live, in the statical chair, who are ever feeling their pulse, and who do not judge of health by the aptitude of the body to perform its functions, but by their ideas of what ought to be the true balance between the several secretions. Is a committee of Cornwall, etc., thronged, and the others deserted? No, you have an equal representation, because you have men equally interested in the prosperity of the whole, who are involved in the general interest and the general sympathy, and perhaps these places, furnishing a superfluity of public agents and administrators, whether in strictness they are representatives or not, I do not mean to inquire, but they are agents and administrators, will stand clearer of local interests, passions, prejudices, and cabals than the others, and therefore preserve the balance of the parts, and with a more general view and a more steady hand than the rest. 
In every political proposal we must not leave out of the question the political views and object of the proposer, and these we discover, not by what he says, but by the principles he lays down. I mean, says he, a moderate and temperate reform, that is, I mean to do as little good as possible. If the Constitution be what you represent it, and there be no danger in the change, you do wrong not to make the reform commensurate to the abuse. Fine reformer, indeed! Generous donor! What is the cause of this parsimony of the liberty which you dole out to the people? Why all this limitation in giving blessings and benefits to mankind? You admit that there is an extreme in liberty, which may be infinitely noxious to those who are to receive it, and which in the end will leave them no liberty at all. I think so, too. They know it, and they feel it. The question is, then, what is the standard of that extreme? What that gentleman, and the associations, or some parts of their phalanxes, think proper? Then our liberties are in their pleasure. It depends on their arbitrary will how far I shall be free. I will have none of that freedom. If, therefore, the standard of moderation be sought for, I will seek for it. Where? not in their fancies, nor in my own, I will seek for it where I know it is to be found, in the Constitution I actually enjoy. Here it says, to an encroaching prerogative, your sceptre has its length. You cannot add a hair to your head, or a gem to your crown, but what an eternal law has given to it. Here it says to an overweening peerage, your pride finds banks that it cannot overflow. Here to a tumultuous and giddy people, there is a bound to the raging of the sea." Our constitution is like our island, which uses and restrains its subject sea, in vain the waves roar. In that constitution I know, and exultingly I feel, both that I am free and that I am not free dangerously to myself or to others. I know that no power on earth, acting as I ought to do, can touch my life, my liberty, or my property. I have that inward and dignified consciousness of my own security and independence, which constitutes, and is the only thing which does constitute, the proud and comfortable sentiment of freedom in the human breast. I know, too, and I bless God for my safe mediocrity. I know that if I possessed all the talents of the gentleman on the side of the house I sit, and on the other, I cannot, by royal favour, or by popular delusion, or by oligarchical cabal, elevate myself above a certain very limited point, so as to endanger my own fall or the ruin of my country. I know there is an order that keeps things fast in their place. It is made to us, and we are made to it. Why not ask another wife, other children, another body, another mind? The great object of most of these reformers is to prepare the destruction of the Constitution by disgracing and discrediting the House of Commons. For they think— prudently, in my opinion, that if they can persuade the nation that the House of Commons is so constituted as not to secure the public liberty, not to have a proper connection with the public interests, so constituted as not, either actually or virtually, to be the representative of the people, it will be easy to prove that a government composed of a monarchy, an oligarchy chosen by the crown, and such a House of Commons, whatever good can be in such a system, can by no means be a system of free government. The Constitution of England is never to have a quietus. It is to be continually vilified, attacked, reproached, resisted, instead of being the hope and sure anchor in all storms, instead of being the means of redress to all grievances. Itself is the grand grievance of the nation, our shame instead of our glory. 
if the only specific plan proposed, individual personal representation, is directly rejected by the person who is looked on as the great support of this business, then the only way of considering it is as a question of convenience. An honourable gentleman prefers the individual to the present. He therefore himself sees no middle term whatsoever, and therefore prefers of what he sees the individual. This is the only thing distinct and sensible that has been advocated. He has then a scheme, which is the individual representation. He is not at a loss, not inconsistent, which scheme the other right honourable gentleman reprobates. Now, what does this go to but to lead directly to anarchy? For to discredit the only government which he either possesses or can project, what is this but to destroy all government, and this is anarchy? My right honourable friend, in supporting this motion, disgraces his friends and justifies his enemies, in order to blacken the constitution of his country, even of that House of Commons which supported him. There is a difference between a moral or political exposure of a public evil, relative to the administration of government, whether in men or systems, and a declaration of defects, real or supposed, in the fundamental constitution of your country. The first may be cured in the individual by the motives of religion, virtue, honour, fear, shame, or interest. Men may be made to abandon, also, false systems by exposing their absurdity or mischievous tendency to their own better thoughts, or to the contempt or indignation of the public, and after all, if they should exist, and exist uncorrected, they only disgrace individuals as fugitive opinions. But it is quite otherwise with the frame and constitution of the state. If that is disgraced, patriotism is destroyed in its very source. No man has ever willingly obeyed, much less was desirous of defending with his blood, a mischievous and absurd scheme of government. Our first, our dearest, most comprehensive relation, our country, is gone. It suggests melancholy reflections, in consequence of the strange course we have long held, that we are now no longer quarrelling about the character, or about the conduct of men, or the tenor of measures, but we are grown out of humour with the English constitution itself. This is become the object of the animosity of Englishmen. This constitution, in former days, used to be the admiration and the envy of the world. It was the pattern for politicians, the theme of the eloquent, the mediation of the philosopher in every part of the world. As to Englishmen, it was their pride, their consolation. By it they lived, for it they were ready to die. Its defects, if it had any, were partly covered by partiality, and partly borne by prudence. Now all its excellencies are forgotten, its faults are now forcibly dragged into day, exaggerated by every artifice of representation. It is despised and rejected of men, and every device and invention of ingenuity or idleness set up in opposition or in preference to it. It is to this humour, and it is to the measures growing out of it, that I set myself, I hope not alone, in the most determined opposition. Never before did we at any time in this country meet upon the theory of our frame of government, to sit in judgment on the constitution of our country, to call it as a delinquent before us, and to accuse it of every defect and every vice, to see whether it, an object of our veneration, even our adoration, did or did not accord with a preconceived scheme in the minds of certain gentlemen. Cast your eyes on the journals of Parliament. It is for fear of losing the inestimable treasure we have, that I do not venture to game it out of my hands for the vain hope of improving it. 
I look with filial reverence on the constitution of my country, and never will cut it in pieces, and put it into the kettle of any magician, in order to boil it, with the puddle of their compounds, into youth and vigour. On the contrary, I will drive away such pretenders, I will nurse its venerable age, and with lenient arts extend a parent's breath. End of speech.